The scriptures say, in him we live and move and have our being. And right now we find ourselves smack dab in the middle of this story that God is telling and that he wants to tell with our lives and through our lungs. And so Holy Spirit, would you come um, as we sit in your presence together this morning and would you speak? And Lord, I just want to pray uh, the forgiveness and freedom uh, that you long to offer people over each one in this room. So come Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Well, good morning. My name is uh, Kyle, and I get to be one of the pastors here. And as we just jump in this morning, I want to make sure there's a couple of things that are on my radar that get onto your radar. Um, and so just a few things in kind of I guess, chronological order. So next Sunday morning for our gathering, Steph and I will not be here. That is by design. Um, we are heading out for a, a kind of a week of retreat um, together. And um, uh, But as fate would have it, um, the next pastor here at Regen, whose name is Dick Wiedenheft, uh, he will be in the house with us preaching next week. Um, if this is a surprise to you, it's probably because you don't read your email. Um, so I, my, my, my days here among you as your pastor are numbered. Um, we have about two months left or less. And so, uh, but the kind of in the providence of God, things lined up that Dick was able to be with us next week. So you'll be able to meet him. He will preach next Sunday. And then there will be a potluck lunch immediately after the gathering for some Q&A, just for you to get to know him, uh, to hear a little bit of his story. And I just want to state for like the 17,000th time, how thrilled we are that Dick and his wife Anne will be coming. And they are the exact kind of people that we need to lead Regen into this next season. Uh, because I'm leaving, um, we are having what I'm lovingly referring to as a going out of business sale on baptisms and baby dedications. Um, and so um, if, if you have not been baptized and God's been doing something in your life and you'd like to be baptized or you were baptized maybe as a child and would like to reaffirm that baptism, we will be doing, or if you have a baby that you would like me to baptize, we will be doing that uh, Sunday, May 28th. Keith Hamilton Tennant will be being baptized. Um, and that'll actually be a hybrid experience because uh, Pastor Rick Oaks, who's our mentor, will be baptizing Keith. And then we'll kind of do some sort of relay handoff where then I'll baptize everybody else. Does that make sense? Um, and we'll be doing some adult, adult baptisms. So if you're an adult in the room, you'd like to be baptized or reaffirm your baptism, please talk to me or Steph so we can get you on that list. And then if you have a baby that you'd like me to dedicate, we will do that on June 4th. And we're literally just breaking them up because of spies and space in the room. Um, and so that'll be really, really good. So what did I say? Spies in the room, because there are people here size and space. Okay. This should be interesting. I've got to now talk for another half hour. Uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead, go ahead and meet me in Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9 while we continue this series called Follow Me. We're looking at all these times in the Gospels where Jesus explicitly says to someone, follow me, and thinking about what that means for us in all of our seasons of life. So we'll be in Matthew 9. 
I grew up in a church uh, in which uh, when we received communion, which was not weekly, it was about monthly, when we received communion, the pastor would offer like a stern warning as, and the stern warning was something like, do not come to the communion table today if there's some sort of sin in your life. Now, I was at the time a teenage boy filled with teenage boy hormones and therefore thinking teenage boy thoughts. You know what I mean? I don't think you know what I mean, so think about it longer. Okay, there it is. And so because of those thoughts, I rarely felt like I should take communion, given the warning that our pastor made, right? And on those rare communion Sundays, when I felt like I had that sort of managed, there was always going to be some other kind of sin in my life, right? That would prevent me from receiving communion. Now, as a rule, I always received communion because I didn't want anybody to know that I was in a position that I shouldn't be receiving communion. Do you see where I'm at? Got to keep that hidden. So what I learned in that experience, though, was that at some level, Jesus didn't really want to deal with me and my sin. And that's weird, right? Because Jesus comes to save us from our sin. But what I, what I picked up from that was that once Jesus had kind of done the initial work, right, it was my job to kind of get my behavior in line after that. Right? He'd done all of this for you, so why can't you just, you know, behave, right? Dallas Willard calls this the gospel of sin management. The gospel of sin management. That Jesus is only really interested in our wrongdoing, in our wrong being, and that the goal of Christianity is to fix that, right? Now, because I was under the impression that Jesus mostly wanted me to get my behavior in line, it should come as no surprise that when I first had an opportunity to disciple someone, I was mostly concerned about getting their behavior in line. After a period of over a period of months, I think in my sophomore or junior year, I shared the gospel with a friend, and that friend placed his faith in Christ. And immediately after, I started urging him to read the Bible and come to church and pray, but I also started pushing him to break up with his girlfriend who was not a Christian. Jess Bradley and I went to school together, so she finds this very funny. <laughs> um, now, of course, I had these conversations with him, and what did he do? He went immediately back to his girlfriend and told us about these conversations, and then the girlfriend told everybody else at school, so I had a, a few lonely weeks while everyone hated me. Um, and, and it eventually kind of got sorted out in an awkward high school kind of way. But I, I mention all of this because as we think of following Jesus, what comes to mind for so many of us are the bad things that we have done. Our wrongdoing and our wrongbeing. Um, and we assume that what's stopping us from following Jesus, from being a disciple, is those bad things that we are or have done or we are doing. We assume that Jesus' first order of business is to get our behavior in line as quickly as possible. And therefore, our first order of business as disciple makers needs to be to get other people's behavior in line as quickly as possible. But this morning, I want us to look at the surprising way Right, I, you've learned me, heard me preach enough to know, like, I'm, I'm building tension to be like, but it's not that way, right? 
because I want us to look at the surprising way that Jesus deals with our wrongdoing and our wrongbeing as we go to follow him. So this is where we'll be in Matthew chapter 9. Matthew 9. In Matthew 9, Jesus is walking along and stumbles upon someone who he wants to have as his disciple. And so Jesus calls this guy to be his disciple with the usual words. He says this guy, follow me. Now last week we explored how these two words, they're just jam-packed with meaning for those living in Jesus' day. They were words that almost every young Jewish man longed to hear from a rabbi, a, a teacher of the law of Moses. They were also words that very, 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 very few young Jewish men got to hear from a rabbi. A rabbi's disciple sought in every way to imitate his rabbi, not just in the way that he taught or the things that he thought, but down to minutiae, like how he dressed and how he walked and how he ate and those kinds of things. Jesus back then and Jesus now is looking for disciples. He's not looking for believers. He's not looking for people who just intellectually assent to the things that he says. He's looking for people who will be his learners, who will be his imitators. And in Matthew 9, Jesus uses the words he usually uses to call another disciple to himself. What is unusual is the person Jesus calls to follow him. Matthew 9, uh, verse 9 says that as Jesus was walking along, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at his tax collector's booth. And someone, when they first heard this story, gasped. Jesus says, follow me and be my disciple. And Matthew got up and followed him. The man Jesus is calling to be his disciple is a tax collector. You and I don't exactly like taxes. Like, congratulations, we made it through another tax season. You know what I mean? Um, we do not necessarily like the IRS. And our distrust of the IRS and our dislike of taxes pale in comparison to what Matthew here in Matthew 9, what he is involved in. The Roman Empire ruled over most of the known world in Jesus' day, and part of their rule was a level of taxation that makes what we face today look like a joke, right? Rome charged exorbitant amounts from the populations they governed. And to, let, to collect those taxes, the Romans did an interesting thing. They, they employed tax collectors from the population or people group under their rule. So tax collectors came from like the ruled and sub subjugated population. And, and interestingly, they were very, very, very wealthy. And here's why. Tax collectors got to choose how much they were paid. So the Roman government would say, this is how much money we want, and you can ask for anything above that, and that's your wage, right? Which means Matthew, who is in this passage we find very wealthy, has earned his wealth by cheating his own countrymen out of their hard-earned wages to build for himself a life of lavish comfort. Which is why tax collectors like Matthew are some of the most hated people at the time of Jesus. They're hated by their countrymen who view them as traitors. 
They're hated by their rabbis and religious leaders because these tax collectors are in close proximity to Gentiles and therefore ritually unclean. They're also hated by their bosses. They're hated by the Romans who employ them because they're viewed to be spineless, right? You can't even stand up for your own people. You come work for us just for a few bucks. And this kind of person is who Jesus calls to be his disciple. Now, Matthew, just like James and John and Simon and Andrew, who we met last week, Matthew drops what he's doing to follow Jesus because he is a young Jewish man who has longed to hear those two words, follow me, from a rabbi. Matthew then proceeds to throw a party. In verse 10, it says, uh, Matthew later invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. Matthew throws a party for Jesus and Jesus' disciples, but there are other people on the guest list, disreputable sinners. These are people who do not observe scribal rules of purity and tithing. In other words, they're like lapsed or wayward Jews, right? More broadly, it speaks to notoriously sinful people, which is why Matthew and other gospel writers use this word to describe prostitutes. So Jesus is in the midst of a gang of sinners. You might say that he is in a wretched hive of scum and villainy, for my Star Wars fans. And this in the, thank you, and this in the gang of sinners, we find Jesus. Now, Jesus spending time with those kind of people causes a bit of a stir and a scandal. So other religious leaders, experts in religious law, they confront Jesus. They want to know why he is eating with such people because eating with someone in this time is it's not just like, let's all go out to eat and get to know one another better. It is received as an implicit affirmation of someone's behavior, Right? It's an act of like saying, yeah, I'm, I'm good with this person and what they do and how they do it. And Jesus responds this way in verses 12 and 13. When Jesus heard this, he said, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. By the way, this is a little proverb that's like very common in the classical world. You can find it in like many other philosophers. It shows that Jesus is well read. He adds, now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. He says, go and learn the meaning of this scripture to like... Bible professors, right? It's pretty cool. Go and learn the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy and not offer sacrifices, for I have come. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. Now, Jesus compares himself to a doctor caring for the sick. He says, I have not come. To, I, I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. And somewhere, some Methodists just set their hair on fire. I've watched them do it before um, when I've read this verse. Jesus says, Jesus says this to men who, just, who don't just think they are righteous, who know they are righteous, who know they are significantly more righteous than most other people. They have devoted themselves to the scripture and to prayer and to worship in the synagogue and, to, and the temple. They, they follow not only the laws of Moses, but the laws of the scribes and the Pharisees to the letter. Their behavior and their morals are impeccable. And Jesus says, yeah, there's something wrong there. You're missing something. He says, I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. Now that comes from the book of Hosea. Preached that a few weeks ago. 
And it comes from a particular section in Hosea. Here's a, a fun fact. When you read like a new, an Old Testament quotation in the New, they're not just quoting the words themselves, but kind of that whole passage, that whole context of that passage, right? They're throwing out that one line to evoke like to people that have the Bible memorized, as they do in Jesus' day, like a whole section of the Bible, right? And this section of the Bible, this section of the prophet Hosea, is about challenging, challenging people's instinctive reliance on correct ritual while ignoring the moral demands of their religion. That was from a scholar I read. Let me read that again. Jesus throws this out to challenge an instinctive reliance on correct ritual. If I can just check the boxes. While ignoring the moral demands of their religion. See, Jesus says that while the Pharisees have fulfilled the law by avoiding sinners, by having nothing to do with them, by keeping themselves ritually pure, they have actually violated the moral demands of their own religion. They have failed to show mercy. In the same way, for example, Yahweh calls Jonah to show mercy to the Ninevites. And so Jesus says, I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but know they are sinners. I was struck by the power and the scandal of these words again this week. Because Jesus says, if you think you are righteous, you are actually in trouble. If you think of yourself because of your good behavior as the exact kind of person that, that, that is going to be pleasing to God's heart, you're probably not. Your years, see, reading that verse alone in some context has gotten me in a lot of trouble. And then saying what I'm about to say next has had people like re reaching for pitchforks. Your, rear, your years of rigorous church attendance and committee membership that fulfill the ritual demands of your religion have actually led you to ignore the moral demands of your religion, is what Jesus says. And I was struck again by the scandal of grace because Jesus says, if you, he says, I'm not coming to get those who think they're sinners but who know they're, not those who think they're righteous, but who know they're sinners. Jesus is looking for certainty, right? It's just that the certainty is applied in the wrong direction for these people who think they're righteous. Jesus is out here looking for the people who know they're messed up. Jesus is out here looking for the people that know they need help. Now, just quickly, look at what happens next in verse 14 through 17. It says, one day the disciples of John the Baptist came to Jesus. Now, a lot of scholars actually think that this is all happening at the same dinner. So it's not a different scenario. The Pharisees, like, crash this dinner where Jesus is hanging out with sinners, and they're yelling at Jesus. And right behind them come the disciples of John the Baptist, who also want to yell at Jesus. Okay? Um, it says, one day the disciples of, Jesus, of John the Baptist came to Jesus and asked him, why don't your disciples fast like we do and the Pharisees do? And Jesus replied, do wedding guests mourn while celebrating with the groom? Now, maybe like mother-in-laws do, but that's a different conversation, right? <laughs> do wedding guests mourn? Do wedding guests mourn while, the cel while celebrating with the groom? Of course not. Of course not. But someday the groom will be taken away from them and then they will fast whole sermon on then they will be taken away that Kristen and I like wrote in text messages while talking about this passage this week don't have time for it but Jesus says besides who would patch old clothing with new cloth for the new patch 
would shrink and rip away from the old cloth, leaving a bigger tear than before. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, for the old skins would burst from the pressure, spilling the wine and ruining the skins. New wine is stored in new wineskins. See, Jesus uh, has, has encountered a problem. The Pharisees, the Pharisees have a problem with who Jesus is spending their, his time with. The Pharisees have this problem who, with these, who you're spending your time with. The disciples of John have a problem with how he's spending his time with them. In essence, their problem is, you're just having too much fun. They don't fast. Why, Jesus, why aren't you making your disciples fast? Why aren't they engaged in these rigorous set of behaviors and rituals? See, the disciples of John come, and like, from the outside looking in, like it looks like they're having a party. And one commentator noted that Jesus uses these short parables of patches and garments and wine and wineskins because Jesus is intentionally taking a new approach, and that approach is joy. Hang around with us for a minute, and we'll find that you ha we have a very specific definition of joy in the house, don't we? It is not like the Christian, it's not happiness that you buy at the Christian bookstore, okay? Joy is the feeling we get when someone is glad to be with us, okay? It is a biological reality as much as it is an emotional one, and it is, with certainty, the most, one of the most transformative powers on the planet. When you have someone who is glad to be with you, when you are the twinkle in someone's eye, no matter what you're going through or what you have gone through, when that's happening, everything changes. Joy tills the soil of our hearts so that real and lasting transformation can take place. It is a transformation that lasts far longer and goes far deeper than simple behavior modification, which is what the Pharisees and the disciples of John are about. It's what Kyle was about with his high school friend. But what is Jesus' approach to Matthew and these other notorious sinners? What is his approach? It's not to address their behavior. Jesus isn't just about getting these wayward Jews to tithe and follow ritual purity laws. He isn't making them fast. Jesus' approach, right here at the beginning and all the way through, is an approach of joy. And he sees sinful people, and he sees broken people, and he is stunningly just glad to be with them. Dane Ortland writes, and I, I use this quote. This is kind of aligning a little bit with a series we preached la this time last year. On, on the healer, so I, I kept finding myself going back to those notes. And this quote we used last year, the cumulative testimony of the four Gospels is that when Jesus sees the fallenness of the world all about him, his deepest impulse, his most natural instinct is to move toward sin and suffering, not away from it. His, when he sees the fallenness of the world, his deepest impulse, his most natural instinct is to move toward that sin and suffering not away from it. Jesus moves towards sin, not with a list of do's and don'ts for behavior modification on his mind. He's not interested in the gospel of sin management. He's interested in joy. He is just glad to be with sinful people. Which means this. If you are someone, if you are someone who has been following Jesus for a long time, or if you're kind of just getting back in the groove of following Jesus after a while. 
or if you are just setting out on the journey with Jesus, or you're contemplating beginning a journey with Jesus, but haven't quite yet stepped across the line of faith, and if you find yourself in that position wondering, what about all of the things that I have done? What about the divorce? What about the abortion? What about the addiction? These are not the kind of things that are stopping Jesus from wanting to be with you. And, and, and I think if you are like been following Jesus for a long time, um, what you begin to experience is um, the church mothers and fathers talked a lot about that when we first come to Christ, we, we struggle with what they called gross sins, which isn't like, ew, gross, but these big, hairy, giant sins, right? And as we follow Jesus for a little while, those get nailed to the cross, those go into the grave to die, and we experience a measure of transformation. And then there's just kind of this long journey where there's just these little, what uh, I think John Owen calls them, besetting sins. Like these like little sins that just nip at your heels. Right? And, and you get to this point in your walk with Jesus where like those are the things that you're dealing with. And because they're small and they creep up, it's actually a lot harder to deal with, isn't it? Like, I, I actually liked dealing with the issues of like my like teens and 20s more than I like having to face like the defensiveness I experience when I'm in conflict. Like the pride and vanity that like I walk through my life with. Or, or my inability, um, like when I get stern with Jack, like my joy with him goes away. Like I, I actually am way more grieved at this point in my life about those things uh, because they just feel harder to deal with. And sometimes I even feel like these little niggly, nagging, little itsy bitsy biting at my heel sins also sometimes have me wondering how Jesus feels toward me. And if that's you, like if you've been following Jesus for a while and there's this just that low level like acceptable sin that's just kind of chasing you down all the time, like Jesus' approach is still one of joy. Like he's still glad to be with you. The gross sins or the small ones, these are not things that are stopping you from being someone that Jesus wants to be around. They aren't stopping you from the, being the kind of person that Jesus would walk up to and say, come and follow me. They aren't the kinds of things that would stop Jesus from being unshakably, deeply glad to be with you in. This does not, these things do not stop you from being the twinkle of, in his eye. Jesus' posture towards you will always be, will forever be, joy because Jesus knows the path to lasting change isn't by just giving you a list of things you need to fix and fast so that you can follow him Jesus knows that by maintaining a steady posture of, of grace and joy by playing the long game with us in our lives by inviting us to be near him he knows that that is the most effective and powerful path to be able to challenge you where you need to be challenged, to heal you where you need to be healed, to be corrected where you need to be corrected, and sanctified or made holy where you need to be made holy. Jesus plays a long game. Jesus plays a long game. 
See, everything changed for me in high school when I discovered that Jesus was glad to be with me. That Jesus liked me. Everything changed when I found out that grace wasn't just the thing Jesus did to save me, but it was the way that he would continue to interact with me my whole life long. Everything changed when Jesus put people into my life that were glad to be with me. Who didn't primarily address like my behavior, but were just glad to be with me. And out of that gladness came conversations about my behavior that are still ongoing. But their joy tilled the soil of my heart so that, listen to me, when the Holy Spirit convicted me, which is his job, when the Holy Spirit convicted me in his timing, not theirs, but his, I was ready to take that step, right? And when we stop playing the long game, I'm going to get ahead of myself. So, so see, when we, someone starts to follow Jesus, we just get itchy. We just get itchy. Like we see the things they're doing and we see their behavior and, and sometimes despite ourselves and sometimes on purpose, we begin to construct a mental list of everything they need to be doing to get themselves in shape. Got to get them reading their Bibles. Got to get them in church. And by the way, please do all of those things. They're vitally important. Got to get them serving. Got to get them giving. Got to get them breaking up with their girlfriend, evidently. Holiness is of vital importance to the way of Jesus. It is because we need to be imitators of Jesus, right? And Jesus lived in community and he knew the word and lived a life of service and sacrifice and generosity. But what we want to be discipling people into is being imitators of Jesus, not, a, not just followers of lists of rules, right? And there's a fine line. It's tricky, isn't it? The thing we have to confess is that we are not nearly as good at leading people into holiness as Jesus is. And the order that you and I want to address things in people's lives is 90% of the time not exactly the order in which the Holy Spirit would like to address things in people's lives. And this is true in discipleship and leadership and running a ministry and leading a small group and teaching Sunday school and it's super true in parenting. Let me tell you the list of things that I would like Jack Tennant to adjust <laughs> to make why? To make my life easier. Not so that he could flourish and become the like man I want him to be, just so like my day could move at a little smoother pace, right? Okay, sorry. Speaking of Jack Tennant, there he is. It's true in all of those experiences because often what we need to confess is just a desire to make it easier on us, right? See, we get itchy when we're discipling people because Jesus didn't offer us a protocol. He did not offer us a set of steps for triaging and addressing a person's behavior. I've read the Gospels a few times now and I've yet to find in there, okay, when someone comes to faith, I want you to do this and then this and then this and then this, and then this, and boom, they'll be a Christian and everything will be great. Jesus does not offer a protocol, so what we've done is create our own protocol, our own series of steps, 
even though we, what we've done is we've created a ritual, even though right here in Matthew 9, Jesus is like, by the way, it's about mercy, not sacrifice. It's not about ritual. It's about kind of this like life-giving, interactive relationship with Jesus that's based on joy where things happen in his timing and in his way. See, Jesus says it's about mercy. It is about grace. It is about joy. Jesus did not give us a protocol. Now, if he did, if he did, let me tell you what the protocol is. 100% grace, 100% truth, 100% of the time. 100% grace, 100% truth, 100% of the time. Which, by the way, kind of isn't any more of a protocol than anything else I've said to this point, is it, right? See, Jesus gives us postures instead of procedures or protocol. He does that so that discipleship remains intensely personal. So that discipleship remains intensely personal. Disciples are handmade, are handmade one at a time. They are not mass produced. And if Jesus gave us like a protocol, then we could just mass produce them. But then what would we be doing? We would not be producing disciples. And if we were mass producing, we would be doing that without him. See, that's the other problem. If we have a protocol and a list of things to follow, we don't need Jesus anymore right? I don't need Jesus's help as I'm discipling my son. I don't need Jesus's help as I'm discipling you because I just have this list of things in my head and if I can just run you through those and da-da-da-da, everything will be fine. See, it's almost like Jesus sets it up that in order to disciple someone effectively, I have to pay close attention to his voice to know what to say and when to say it and how to say it. It's almost like Jesus wants me to remain dependent on him. Ha! It's almost like Jesus wants us to remain dependent on him instead of erecting a structure that we could define as we were able to accomplish that with our own ingenuity. If there is one thing that I know about what God has done with this group of people in this particular place and this particular time is that it is not a testament to my ingenuity, creativity, or leadership. It is only something that the Holy Spirit could have done. And that's what discipleship is. Jesus does not give us a protocol. Jesus gives us a posture. Jesus gives us a posture. The disciples of John thought Jesus was having too much fun. It looked, it didn't look enough like beating sin out of people. It didn't look, it didn't look shamey enough. It looked too much like a wedding reception. If you are investing in people and longing for them to know Jesus, my question is, does it feel like you've invited them to a party? Not the Republican Party. Not the Democratic Party. Not a We Hate Disney boycott party. Or a Let's Ban Books party. Like a party party. And not just like a party, like a party, right? <laughs> Because Maya Angelou, Maya Angelou once said, people will never remember what you say, and they will never remember what you do, but they will always remember the way that you made them feel. Do people know that you are glad to be with them? Heather's going to come and lead us in responding.